We are in Acts 22, and where we've gotten so far is the arrest of Paul in Jerusalem. And he's getting ready to make his first defense. Now, in his first defense, he's going to use his um, testimony. And the question you have to ask is why would an author put the same story in a small book three times? You ever wondered that? Three times in the book of Acts, you see Paul's testimony. Acts 9 and Acts 22, which we're at today, and later on he'll do it again. And then in other, other spots, um, where we'll hear a little bit about that. But, it, but in one book, you would think, okay, one time would be enough. But, of course, you think of the historian Luke, and he wants to make sure that he gets everything precise and correct. You know, he is the historian, and he is the writer. But that's probably not the real reason. I think the real reason is, as R.C. Sproul was talking about this text, he was saying that it establishes the apostleship of Paul. And then when you see that, it's all about God. And the testimony is all about God. It's not what Paul did here. It's, it's about what God did. So I think that that is the prevailing thought when we give our testimony. Testimonies are very good to have. We, we should be able to use those in a conversation. Always looking forward to, to give that, making it personal. But we definitely want to stress the fact of what God did and not what we did because it's all about Him and, and salvation. And, of course, that's what Paul is going to do here. He, he communicates the, the truth of Christ uh, as he communicates his experience, but he definitely puts the emphasis uh, on the right matter in Christ Himself. So um, that's really where we're at. He, uh, he came into Jerusalem and uh, he was told that he'd be arrested, and sure enough, he was. Um, the Romans and um, the Jews uh, are all uh, trying to um, uh, contain him. The Romans don't really know what's going on. Uh, the Jews, uh, especially the the ones who um, have heard what Paul has done, whether it be true or not, what they've basically heard are lies. And this mob that is there has been uh, incited to uh, create all sorts of havoc there in Jerusalem, there at the temple. And then the temple guards, uh, actually the Roman soldiers are really the ones that are going to have to uh, hold this down. That's what we saw last week. And uh, so now he's getting the opportunity because of the, uh, the Roman uh, commander there who was ahead of a thousand and they make sure they bring in plenty of soldiers at this time of the feast. It's uh, Pentecost. So you're going to have a lot of um, people there, maybe up to two million. And um, whenever things are happening at the temple, better watch out. And, of course, their uh, headquarters looks right down over the temple. And they could see what was going on down there. And they saw a ruckus. And there's Paul in the middle of it. Um, the, the Jews are really trying to kill him. And um, he gets the opportunity to speak uh, from the uh, the commander. Anyway, that uh, brings us up to uh, chapter 22. And why don't we have a word of prayer first? And uh, I think we want to keep Barb in prayer, right?
We don't know what she has or whatever it is. She's not doing very well at all. I know she was here last Tuesday and she wasn't feeling very good at all. And I don't know if that was the outset of it or whether there was something else. And I think she had tried to call me and I tried to get back with her and then she probably tried to call me again. I was telling Luke I tend to lose my phone and not get it. So if you ever call me and I don't get back with you, don't take it personally. I have trouble with that phone. I used to keep it on me all the time. <laughs> and I never missed the call or I'd, no, I could no, get he back. Could, he couldn't hear the phone when he had it on. So. Well, at least I had it there. I knew where it was at. And half the time, I don't even know where it's at. So don't take it personally. I'll try to get better on that because I know sometimes you guys want to get a hold of me and you're not. You said, I can't get a hold of me. He's not answering his phone. But anyway. Father, we thank You for this this evening. Thank You for this day that You've given us. Uh, just absolute uh, gorgeous day. And, uh, reminds me, us of Your creation. You are uh, the beautiful God who gives us beauty to look upon and it reflects who You are. And uh, Lord, as we peer into Your Word tonight, um, an old story we're very familiar with, yet at the same time we look at that and we see the power of God as we do in every place in Scripture, and we see the power in salvation and the power that Paul had in the testimony. And we see you working all throughout this uh, arrest and um, the journeys that Paul has had before that, and then uh, that's going to be forward, that you are sovereign in all of it, and just like in our lives, you are. Lord, we pray for... Um, um, Barb, who is uh, not feeling very well at all, and we know she goes through all sorts of physical uh, things that uh, really can pull her physically down, but we know that uh, now she's battling with whatever, and we just pray that uh, she can get better out of that. It just weakens her whole system down and makes it that much harder to uh, just to, just to live. So uh, we pray for her. Thank, thank you for her, Lord, and uh, the hunger she has for your word. Should keep looking at you, and uh, we give you all praise, and glory, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, let's uh, take. We're going to try to do a chapter. This is a biographical uh, element that's really involved here. It, it does kind of flow along, and of course, we could take it apart more. But I, I think. As we've been trying to, we've we've been right in the middle of of this arrest, and uh, so we'll uh, we'll kind of scoot on a little bit more. Uh, the first twenty one verses deals with the apology of Paul, or the uh, apologia, or I've also heard it pronounced as apologia. I'm not so sure which way it goes, but it's dealing with making. Um, giving an answer. A defense is really what it is. And so he has asked the commander to be able to speak to the mob. He speaks in a Hebrew dialect, which uh, really would be the Aramaic. That's what the popular Jew would spoke at that time. And so he addresses them. He says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, my apologia, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew 
born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. We'll stop there. When you have a testimony, it's before your conversion, then your conversion, and then after the conversion. That's what he does here. That's how we break this, this outline up. So he, he gives his testimony, his, his apology here, his defense, really what it means. And uh, he's very, very uh, clever in that he is led by God's Spirit. And uh, he's able to set this up in a way that after it's all done with, they don't really have anything they can get him on. But they still want to kill him. But they don't have a thing. It's just like Jesus. You know how Jesus did it. And so, right here in the same city. And he addresses them, brethren and fathers, to start off with. Uh, he defends himself here. And I think that address that he has is um, very smart. Brethren and fathers. These are the Jewish people. And that's the same way that a guy by the name of Stephen addressed the crowd. Well, we know what happened to Stephen, too, don't we? Uh, of course, Paul was there at Stephen's stoning, but uh, in, in Acts 7, in verse 1, the high priest, it's just like they're, they're accusing Stephen of blasphemy, the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. Here again. The brethren, as far as being Jewish people, the, the fathers, the... Uh, the leaders and such. So that's what he starts with. Same same thing. Um, he says, "Here my defense. Here my um, my defense. My uh, apologetics here." And he's defending himself on two counts. He's defending himself on his motives and on his deeds. Now, if you go to court, what they will do is they will try to establish a motive that somebody had. Uh, what's the, did, he, did he have a motive to, to kill somebody, for instance? Or what was that motive? If there's a motive there, then they are on a track that uh, could be leading to an, uh, uh, the guilt because of the deed. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, I'm impressed with Fred's uh, Opinion of his respect for his elders. And uh, he won't call me, he will call me pastor. And he won't call Connie Connie, he calls her Auntie Connie. <laughs> and uh, I, I I wrote him back and I asked him, why did you call her Auntie Connie? Because I didn't understand that. And he says, because we don't call our elders by their first name, we always call them by Auntie. And so, auntie is not aunt, but it means an elder. It's a respectful uh, address. And so, I was thinking about brothers and fathers, and how that Paul 
that dresses them and have respect for those that were fathers. But he said that, but Fred told me, he says, those that are my age, we call them by, our, by their name. But anybody who's older than I am, we don't, we don't call them by their first name. So that's kind of like what Paul's doing here. He, his brothers would be the ones that would be, yeah, respect for the elders. And I think we've lost that in our our country, uh, even in the even in the church today. And yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good thing, you know, to teach the young people and as we grow up, still to, to continue with that. Yeah. Well. Um, He's standing at the top of the stairs as he's addressing this. I kind of forgot to say that. And you get, you got to realize that he's got chains on his hands. And also, he's surrounded by Roman soldiers as he's giving this address. And another thing, he there's blood all over his clothes. He's already been beaten by the Jews before the Romans got there. Um, quite a beating. Uh, I'm sure his skin, his face is, is all puffed up. Uh, he's bruised. The mob has now quietened down, and so that's getting a little bit of the ambience of what's happening. And he's saying to himself as he addresses him, "They're not. They they can't condemn my motives." As he addresses with, with this um, idea, very gentle beginning. His motive was never anti-Jewish, and that's really what they've really claimed. And said he's against the Jews. He's against the law. He's against tra- traditions. He's against the temple. Anything that's uh, the Jews held so closely, and they've said that, and none of that's true. You know, if that was his motive, then um, they might have something there. But here he's he's saying, um, "Hey, I'm truly a Jew. I see you as brethren, as fathers. I'm offering this to you." He's speaking in the, their language, whereas Earlier, he was speaking in Greek, and the commander understood him. Um, so now he um, uh, speaks in their language. They understand him and gets on, on their level. I'm truly a, a Jew. And he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. I wasn't born here in Jerusalem. I was born in Tarsus, which is you know, a Roman city, a very well-cultured city. He's already said that to commander um, in verse 39. So he's not some uh, Egyptian renegade as he was charged by the commander. He thought that's who he was. And he said, hey, I'm from Tarsus, Cilicia. Uh, that's no insignificant city. It's a well-cultured, well-educated place. And so, you know, he, he gets on that same kind of level with them. He says, I'm from Tarsus, Cilicia. They know that by the way that he's speaking that he is well-educated himself. And then he says, but brought up in this city. Now that's interesting. He reveals a lot there. It's uh, like, and it's probably dealing with, uh, you know, that bar mitzvah, maybe of that age, somewhere in that area. That's what, uh, 12, 13 years old, something like that. And so he was very familiar with the city. And even though he's from somewhere else, Tarsus, there he was. And it's like that was kind of his home for some time. And then he also says that he was educated under Gamaliel. And that is really saying something. Because 
there were really two or maybe even three rabbis that were held in high esteem above all the other rabbis. And one of them was Hillel, one of them was Gamaliel. That's two of those three guys there. I can't remember the name of the other one, but those two are probably the most known. And um, Gamaliel um, actually was the best student of Hillel, but there were two schools of thought that came out of them. So he says, I was educated really under the best. The one that was held in even higher esteem is, is Gamaliel. And that's where Paul is starting at. I, you know, I'm a Jew. I'm from this city. I was educated underneath the best teacher. They all knew who he was. Very well respected. So he has a lot to go with. You know, um, of course, uh, a Pharisaic leader, uh, and Gamaliel was. And then he says, strictly according to the law of our fathers. And that's the legalistic aspect. He was a ca- uh, ca- uh, taught according to the manner of the law of the fathers. The law of our fathers, the traditions, the historic faith of Judaism, all of that is what he's been involved with. And I mean, talking about motives, I mean, they're saying he's anti-Jewish. And this perfect manner has meant the extremes, the strict interpretation of the law that he had. Remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. A letter of the law, a legalist. A letter of the law. So how can they change, uh, charge him with, with this aspect? He, he says, I was trained to the very strictest degree of legalism. <laughs> the idea. And then he says, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. A zealot for God is the way it can be interpreted. And there were different... Um, Different institutions, you can think of the zealots, you can think of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the guys that lived down in uh, where the, uh, the caves were at. Uh, they, they wrote, um, and I need some help. I, I, I forget. The Essenes. The Essenes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. And so those are our four parties that, that are in Israel different way of thinking but as for a zealot he's almost like he's identifying with the zealots in the fact that they were anti-Roman if you're Jewish you don't like the Romans but there are some that go even to a further extreme and that's kind of like what Paul is saying and, and of course this group would even despise the Romans I'm not saying that he was a, was a zealot but he would be on their side and then he gets to something that uh, really ought to touch them. I persecuted this way, the Christians, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. I persecuted Christians. He says, hey, I know how you feel. I did it. That's where I was at. I know why you're beating me up. I'm not holding it against you. I know why you're doing that. I did that. I put people to death. I persecuted them to death. What an interesting approach. What he does there is he, he kind of justifies their motives in a sense. It's not that he's 
justifying that, but he's, he's saying, I was like you. You know, I mean, if anybody's Jewish, it's me, he's saying. I have the same zeal for God that, that you have. And I have the same orthodox character that you have. So he definitely gets on, uh, on their terms. In Galatians 1.13, he said this, For you have heard of my manner of life in time past, how that I, beyond measure, beyond measure, persecuted the church of God, wasted it, and I profited in the Jews. So uh, a religion of uh, many of my equals being more exceeding zealous, he's saying, I was more of a zealot than most of my contemporaries. Um, So he's going back in his past. And he's going back and telling the deeds that he did then. And if that's not enough, he goes one step further. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. And from them I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Even the high priest could bear witness. He knew, he knew Paul exactly what he was about. He knew what he did. He had sent him on on missions to kill Christians. What a tremendous shot that is. If you have any doubt about my zeal for Judaism, look look what I did. Why don't you ask the high priest? Uh, that's the most revered guy in, in all of Judaism, isn't it? The high priest. The high priest. But if that isn't enough, then go check out the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, all the Council of the Elders. Well, how in the world did they know about zeal? Well, it was because of them that he received the letters to go to the Jewish brethren and uh, up in Damascus and bring them back bound be punished in Jerusalem. So he, I mean him of all people, had definitely played the Jewish part. So there's his past life. It it was all, as far as he was concerned, a righteous thing to do. Of course, now he realizes that uh, that was, was despicable as he persecuted Christ, really. So there's before Christ. Then he starts telling about his conversion. He gets them listening. They, and can anybody make that charge about his anti-Jewishness? But we get that famous, but it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus. He'd gotten the letters from the Supreme Court. About noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up, go on into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. He made it (laughs) to Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, 
and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing near, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on His name. Wow, that's what happened. The conversion. I like at the end of 15, you tell all men what you've seen and what you've heard. When you go into court, you give a testimony, what do you tell? What you've seen, what you heard, what you felt. That's exactly what he does. <laughs> this is the conversion. Like I say, this is one of the three that you'll find in Acts. So he he starts to show what happened in his life that it got changed. He's already told him what he what he had done. And his will was was to get rid of Christianity, to stamp it out, to rub it out completely. There have been men uh, down through the centuries that have actually thought that they could get rid of Christianity forever. It never has happened, and it, it won't. But um, his will was to do that. And that's the thing. That's the depravity of man. So against God. And of course, he was very obvious. Other people are not so obvious. But the thing is, until they really um, belong to Christ, they don't really want His will, even though they might even say that. What we see in this story is, I think, um, above all, I, I see the sovereignty of God in salvation. I was going about doing what I was doing, Paul's saying. I was doing what I was doing. All of a sudden, God started to move on my life. God started it. God did it. That light was so intense. And it says, it doesn't really tell us that it is at noon. It says it's about noontime. It's like, but it's comparing uh, the, the brightest time of the day it possibly can be. And it's definitely brighter than that. A very bright light, sudden and flash. So it's brighter than the noonday sun. Noonday sun can be very bright. I was out under today. It's pretty bright. Blue skies shining. I took my glasses off and go, whoa. Sunglasses here. Let me turn real dark. Well, it's bright. Even though it's kind of cool. Kind of chilly a little bit. Wind blowing. And uh, it's like, what is that light? What, what's that light? I think that light was so intense. I think what you might be seeing here is the the glory of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can't even really see him. He's blinded. I I, I think of a blazing Shekinah glory. He was in verse 11. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, the, the glory of that light, since I couldn't see the glory of Jesus, it was so blazing. Throughout the Old Testament, you see... Um, Shekinah glory. Uh, see that at the uh, like at the tabernacle, the temple. Um, you think of um, other times when God uh, made an appearance to man, and uh, it was just a tremendous 
light. God is light. We can't even see what that is. But the incarnation, God revealed Himself in the in the flesh, and we know in the second coming He will reveal Himself in the flesh. Um, the glory of God, the glorious light of God. Uh, Paul, blinded by it, and he goes down. And you can imagine he has a, probably something like a mouthful of dirt, and he's laying flat on the ground, and he's he's just blind as a bat, can't see a thing. But yet there's light flashing all around him. Someone says, or I mean, of course, God's going to speak. Christ's going to speak. says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, it's obvious whenever uh, Christ is persecuted, the church is persecuted, then Christ is persecuted. Body of Christ. And so he's, Christ even it just says, me. And of course, he knew what he had been doing. He's going after Christians. And whenever this Lord says that this is me that you're persecuting, I think it would be rather scary with what has happened just an instant. And here you have the despised Nazarene. Paul despises him. And he's come in his glory. He's the Lord of glory. So he he keeps drawing on this, uh, this testimony. I think what he's, Paul is doing as he's telling about this, as Jesus comes back and, and uh, at, at this time for Paul, he's putting the burden of proof on the people here. This is what happened. And there were witnesses, even though they didn't really understand uh, what was going on necessarily, they knew that something tremendous was happening. Um, of course, in eight is I answered, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said to me, "I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting." And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Paul understood, but they didn't. But they'd seen the light, and it was, you know, just probably confusing to them. But they know something supernatural is happening, as as they're there. And uh, so, you know, these witnesses, who knows, maybe there's some of these guys with them. I, you know, they didn't get converted like Paul did at that very moment. But I have to wonder, wonder if some of them became believers after that. We don't have any knowledge on that whatsoever. Did some of them keep the same attitude that they had before? Anyway, um, they witness quite uh, a miraculous thing. Christ was there. The light was so bright. So blinding, they don't understand that voice that's speaking to Paul. Paul says, "What shall I do, Lord?" <laughs> kind of reminds you of Isaiah in the temple, and um, of course, uh, he has shown his sin as well as the, the nation. I'm a man of unclean lips, as well as the nation of unclean lips all surrounding me. And then he gets a ministry uh, from the Lord there. The sovereignty of God, it's God initiating this whole thing. And of course, no man comes unto me except the Father draws him. And God will always be, always be consistent with that. Here's one guy going one way, and in a moment's time, God just invades his life. He wasn't thinking about this happening that day at all. So, God 
whenever he enters a life like that, he just reverses an entire life. Everything that uh, we saw there in the first uh, few verses is going to be reversed. What a change. Everybody knew that. They have to admit, yeah, that is a tremendous change. <laughs> to be the way you are now, what you were, they don't like that change. So salvation is absolutely an act of God. We don't ever want to forget that. And every time we pray for somebody's conversion, we know that almost all true Christians will say, God, change His heart. I've heard some people pray, whatever it takes, Lord, save him from his sin." They all have to, in their prayer life, they all have to admit that God is the one that changes that life and He's the one that has to initiate it. Even though they've heard the truth all their life, they know it, it takes God to come in and start that salvation thing. So you guys have probably heard those prayers from people who would say they don't believe in election and uh, uh, absolute free grace, it's, it's free will. And, and yet at the same time, they realize the free will of, of a person isn't going to change that person at all until God comes in. So that's where, I guess you could say an Arminian is a Calvinist when he prays to God in the sense that he's relying on God to do something because we can't. Man can't. So that's, that's definitely the, a, a great illustration to use for people. Uh, I know some would say, well, yeah, that was just for the Apostle Paul but it doesn't work on others. <laughs> you can see it through Scripture. Well, the other apostles weren't looking for Jesus either, were they? He falls in. Yep. Right. That, that if you really take that and keep going back and keep looking, there's not one man that ever looked after for God or for you know, like the Jesus Christ. So he called on them. They don't. They might have been in the right uh, in they the religion, something, but they yeah. weren't looking for them. Right. That's amazing to me too how that uh, our whole perspective of sin changes when people come into the light of Jesus Christ. Uh, to where we say, I deserve to go to hell. So our whole entire perspective of what sin is is changed. And a lost man does not confess sin. He does not admit that sin. He will not admit that sin. He will not say that he's done wrong. But once you become a Christian, it is a natural thing for us to confess our sin. Uh, and so uh, you see that in the pattern here in first John. That there are three different people who said, I used to think I don't uh, uh, have, I, I don't believe that there's any sin, but there is no sin, and you make that quiet. But those who confess their sin, there's nothing else. You know, I do it because I have been changed. Exactly. Of the Christian. That's, that's uh, certainly the mark of a Christian. That's what First John is all about. Uh, the marks of Christians. They, they, they confess they their sin. They understand what they were taken out of. Those that are not taken out of it, they don't understand. And that's an interesting theory. The point too is that when you share the gospel message with Jesus Christ, you say, I used to be a sinner. Well, they don't relate to that. 
they don't understand it doesn't come into their concept because well, what you mean you used to be a sinner what, what, what would you like that but, uh, you could have been that bad, yeah. right? Yeah, so a lost man cannot conceive of that, and it's that's where the Spirit of God takes the message of the gospel message of Christ and opens their eyes so they can be able to see it. Because they can't believe it, it's like he does. My sister, my sister, I was talking to her, and she was like, going, like, so what are you sitting there saying? And I did my testimony, and I mentioned about being sin. <gasps> Don't use that word. <laughs> But that's what it is. That's what, that's what our problem is, you know. Right. So she was just horrified. We don't use those that word nowadays. What she tried to sit there and tell me. And I said, uh, Jesus Christ died because of our sin. She was like, What do you mean you don't use those words? You know. No better. So I was horrified to her that it's such a word that we would use that anymore. You know? No better word to describe it, yeah. isn't it? Falling so far short of the glory of God against Him. God had chosen him. God appointed his destiny. Paul uh, knows full well right at that time, that very moment. What uh, What do you want me to do? You know, uh, you you've been persecuting me for one thing. You know, his self righteousness and everything. I, immediately, I mean, his sin had to be before him. I was blind, but now I see. <laughs> the blind man said that in John nine, didn't he? Um, but he's he's seeing. He's starting to see while he's blind. But it's 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 taking just a, a, over a course of a short time here as his salvation is happening. God is dealing with that, isn't He? And I like what's in verse ten so well. What what shall I do, Lord? He first asks him, "Who am? Who are you, Lord?" He says, "I'm Jesus." Well, what shall I do? He's calling him Lord here, <laughs> and the Lord said to me, "Get up." Go on into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Pre-planned. Predetermined. Um, The destiny that God has appointed for Him. Uh, It's not an accident. And every one of us here can say we are a part of God's eternal plan. I think that's exciting an eternal plan that He has for us and, and we're part of it. That's, that's encouraging. That's what I like about a sovereign God. And uh, Whatever He appointed Paul to do, He's appointed each each one of us on, on things. Now, we can rear and buck against it, but eventually He's going to continue to form us into the image of Christ. Uh, yeah, but, you know, but while we're bucking and screaming against that, really... He's really taming us down, and it's not like we're bucking and screaming, but sometimes we may not be going His will. We may not be giving Him glory. We may not be letting Him flow through us. And so, you know, we uh, we miss out on on blessings in that sense, too. But God has His plan, and ultimately it will be um, brought forth. Do you think God's harsh when He gives up? Or do you think He just goes, oh, well, you need to give up? Yeah. Yep. What's well, no no use to spend it on down there in, in the ground? You know, get up. <laughs> I think it was like a, a roaring of get up. <laughs> yeah. Go to Damascus. Yeah. So he goes there. I'm in charge now, Paul. Get up. Get going. You know. 
So he tells how blind he was, since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, that glory, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. That's pretty humbling. This is the Apostle Paul leading men into Damascus to persecute Christians, and now he's coming into Damascus. This is Saul, yeah. And then in comes this character by the name of Ananias. I think this is interesting how Paul uses this. Now, he could have said, Ananias, one of the great Christians of Damascus. But he doesn't say that here. He could have. I mean, Ananias is a believer. But he's devout by the standard of the law. And not only that, he's well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. All the Jews respected him, even being a Christian. It's a good testimony he has. And so if he says that he's uh, quite the quite the Christian, a tremendous great Christian, you can imagine all the booze that would have gotten out of that. Who cares about that? But he doesn't. He, he bypasses that whole thing. And Saul, by Yeah, and it started with the Jew, the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So he's going right in that manner again, and this is what we were. This is uh, what what I am, and this is what Ananias is, according to the law, and he's very devout, having a good report of what the Jews. So Christianity wasn't something that was cooked up by some anti-Jewish people. It started right with them. I mean, so he's pro-Jewish all the way through. Here. That's the very charge that they're trying to do. And he's saying this Ananias that I went to, who is a Jew, happens to be a believer, but he doesn't say that. But he's well respected of by all the other Jews in the city even though they may not necessarily be believers in the Messiah at that time, um, it was Ananias who was a devout Jew. So this whole thing is Jewish. Jewish. And Ananias said, God of our fathers has chosen you. You see that? He came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers. This is the same God the God the Jews had, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on, has appointed you to know His will. I think that's safe to say for all of us. He's appointed us to know His will. He's appointed us to know Him. That's what, that's what the Christian life is about. We're to know Him better and better. And all we can do is through His Word here, His Spirit. But um, Paul certainly got that. And to see the righteous one, the righteous one. Um, that's an Old Testament name for the Messiah. Go to um, Isaiah 53. Verse 11. As a result, and we know Isaiah 53 is uh, the kingpin of the uh, Old Testament. Uh, one of the greatest passages about the uh, suffering servant, the Messiah, down to the very details. As a result of the anguish of his soul, of being Christ, he will see it and be satisfied. 
by His knowledge, the Righteous One, the Righteous One, My servant will justify the many, the elect, and He'll bear their iniquities. He bears their sin. So we know that this is Christ, and He is called the Righteous One. The Righteous One. Paul uses that. They knew that that was the Messiah. Back before the time of Christ, all Jews knew that Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. Today, what do they do with that? Well, can't be Jesus because then then we missed it. There are some Jews that will say, well, that was the Jesus. That was Jesus, all right, the Messiah. But that's for the Gentiles. So that's how they get around it. Or they will say, well... Isaiah 53 really is the nation of Israel. That's another one that the modern rabbi would teach. Yeah. Isn't that the whole point of their whole belief, this Messiah? And that's simply who he, he is getting to in, in this whole story. That's the whole idea, isn't it? That's the whole the whole picture of it. And, and so he, he brings this up. He, he draws from Scripture. I think there's another one. Um, we can go to... I, um, They always looked for the Messiah. And so he comes, and what do they, they do with it? Oh, this is right here. Well, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign righteously. Princes will rule justly. That really has never been filled out. In, in, as far as mankind is concerned. You, a king can do the best that he can, but they're not going to be able to rule perfectly, righteously. Ultimately, we know that that's Christ. They would take that, that righteous one there, the, the king, again, as a Messiah. Okay, this was the Messiah at that very moment. Did they know that, uh, that, that this was the Christ, the Son of the living God? At that time, they chose not to address it. Because uh, they, they, they were inquired of the king, inquired of who is this, and, and they knew. They knew all about it, but they chose not to address it. Well, the king is thinking, well, if that's the king, I don't want him to take my spot. Yeah, and that's the whole point. This whole story here, they don't have anything against him. I mean, I mean, there's nothing that they can bring against him, even though they've told these lies, and he's already disproven those lies about the Jewishness or the anti-Jewishness that he had. Um, so, you know... All the way through here, he's he's just bringing forth one after another, the righteous one. This is the Messiah. This Jesus is the one. He he mentioned that. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus the Nazarene. He doesn't hold that back. He's been careful how he's addressed this and and being very um, 
I think, very sharp by using the Jewishness of it, but he definitely doesn't hold back because that was they were looking for this one. And so Ananias is the one who's telling him this, as as Paul now relates this, as Luke write, writes this down for us. And this is going on in Jerusalem as Paul is telling this, though, right? For you will be a witness for him, this Jesus, this Messiah, to all men of what you've seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? What are you doing? Get going. Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on His name. Call on the name of the Lord. Now, the result will be that your sins are washed away. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. Be baptized. Makes that clear. Um, Now, the key verse that people can use for baptismal regeneration, this would be one of them right here. I mean, it really just shouts out if one didn't interpret this uh, and looking for what it is and then using other Scripture, you could use this to teach baptism washes away sins. I mean, it it says it here, right? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. When you're baptized, you wash away your sins. Well, is it the water? Um, Can water wash away sin? Well, no. Because if you've been in the water... And everybody's been in the water. Everybody would be saved then, right? If it's being baptized or having water on you or whatever, uh, they would say, no, it has to be holy water. What holy water? Well, it has to be water from Jerusalem. Well, then all Jews would be saved if they had gone into uh, the pools that were there in Jerusalem, the holy water, uh, so who, or whoever's dunked in the Jordan River. And so therefore, that'll say, well, we know better than that, don't we? That, that doesn't... Um, agree with the rest of Scripture, and we think of Romans ten nine. He tells us something you know very interesting. This is the word of faith which we preach. What is it you preach, Paul? He says, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So, do we see any water there? No. Do we see any baptism there? No a baptism in in Christ, baptism in the Holy Spirit, but wash away the sins, doing what? Calling on the name of the Lord. And that's really what is saying here in sixteen. Calling away calling on his name. As you be baptized and wash away your sins, it's washing away your sins happens because one is called on his name. So it's I think it's very clear right in the text there. But you use so many other texts and this doesn't hold water. <laughs> huh? That verb is past tense. Called upon the Lord. So therefore, he called upon the Lord before he had been baptized. That has been all along in this procedure. Yeah, so it's past tense. This is how it is. And it shows that this is how sin is forgiven. This is where uh, forgiveness is, uh, happens. So you'll be saved when you call upon the name of the Lord. When you do that, you there's the outward thing now. And it's showing that this is what's happening inward. Of course, the illustration is done there. That's, that's the modifier right there. You'll be saved when you call on the name of the Lord. Get baptized. Get your sin washed away. He got the message. You'll be saved when you call upon Him. You've already called upon Him. This is, this is it. So now be baptized to show. So not that act, right? 
But it, there's a matter of obedience. Of course, Christians did that. Paul knew very well. He had probably seen many baptisms. Probably rated some baptisms. <laughs> Don't know. I just throw that out. That'd make sense, wouldn't it? Definitely heard about it. So they can't accuse him of anything. They can't say, Paul, you did this. He'll say, no, God did this to me. (laughs) I didn't do anything. All the way through, this has been all God. And He has witnesses to prove it. So if you want to indict me or anybody, you have to indict God. Because that's really what you're doing. Boy, I, I would say that pressure is really on them. The burden of proof is on them. Their, their own God. <laughs> it's not a different God. It's their own God that they thought they believed in. So he just turns the tables on them. And so really, who's on trial here? It's really not Paul. Uh, they are. This is what Jesus did. So he doesn't hold that truth back whatsoever. This this is Jesus, the one who lives the Jewish Jesus. <laughs> so looking back at last week, accept the situation from God. What Paul was put into, he was appointed. Accept that that it comes from a sovereign God. Number two is create an opportunity out of something that looks so bad that this opportunity will be good. And then, number three, do everything you can to win the audience. Now, it's not that he's really winning the audience here, but he goes straight for what they would have identified with. He made it very common ground. Get on the level where they're at. To to the Jew, I'm a Jew. To the Gentile, to the Greek, I'm a Greek. Whatever it takes to get on that level, not to, uh, of course, abuse those situations or uh, to take those freedoms and flaunt them, but at the same time, it's it's being in the uh, circumstance and identifying with where they're at. The the yeah, it's good to know what that culture is about. Identify with it. And it's funny. Where he's been, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And where he's really been most of the time has been to all Gentile cities. But now he's at the capital city of, of, of Jewishness. And so here, of course, he went in the synagogues. He was the, the Jew like a Jew. But to the Gentiles, he would start with a different way. So there we get during his conversion and then we get after the conversion. 17 through 21. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, go. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. <laughs> That's right. 
He had to have help. And even then they had trouble trusting him. Well, three years after his conversion, he returned to Jerusalem. We know that he was in Nabataea in Arabia. That's on the um, the east bank uh, of Jerusalem. I mean, it's actually east of there. And that's where he spent uh, those three years. That's what he did. Uh, from Edom on the south, uh, Petra all the way up to Damascus up north. He stayed away from Jerusalem. Um, and he roamed around there for three years and you know, studied the Old Testament and uh, he learned how to present testimony like this. <laughs> but um, a three-year period, Galatians 1, 17 and 18 talks about that. And then in Acts 9, it tells uh, his arrival in Jerusalem. So there, there he, he had been there before. And that's, that's what he's talking about now. Okay, soon after I became converted, I went to Jerusalem. The same city where he's at presently now, but I came here, and he he said he was in a he was praying in the temple, and he fell into a trance. Remember, they had said that he was against the temple. Three years later, after he becomes a, a Christian, he goes into the temple. He goes into a trance. That's an ecstasy, being trans out of some kind of normal sense into a, a spiritual state. You can't exist in something like that unless it's a supernatural experience. This is the kind of sense of where he's at. And Jesus says, No, Paul, they will not receive your testimony at that time. Jesus says, Go, get out of here. This is not the time. Now, the next, when we see the Jerusalem now, this is, I guess it's the time, but at that time, he was supposed to go to the Gentiles, and he said, uh, this is it. And so that was a supernatural appearance from the Lord Himself, and uh, he was probably ready to be persecuted then. He says, I've got a story to tell them, and here, here's what it is, what we just heard. And, of course, he talks about Stephen, as, as we just said. Uh, he says, those circumstances, they look so good. I was such a persecutor, and there Stephen was stoned. And I mean, they're going to know that some fantastic transformation happened to me. I'm just the guy to reach the Jews. God says, get out of town. Go. Get out of here. They won't listen to you. Right now, I've got a ministry for you to go there. Isaiah 6. Isaiah was in the temple. And he kind of went into a trance too. He saw the glory of the Lord. And I have to wonder if Paul was maybe thinking of, of that in some sense. But uh, regardless, uh, he was sent. Uh, Lord, here am I. Send me. <laughs> Jesus is commissioning here. and So he was sent away by Jesus here and um, far to the Gentiles. And... Um, 
he says, I was raised a Jew. I am not anti-Semitic. Uh, you can't accuse me going after Christianity myself. I didn't have anything to, to start with it. I just didn't dive in and accept it. God did to me. It was against my will. It was against my own flesh and will. You're talking about free will, choosing salvation? Not at all. Not at all. That very moment on the road to Damascus. And um, I think if people don't like that, they have to deal with God about it because that was the absolute sovereignty of God and the whole plan. You know what? That's point number one. And we have come to the end of our time tonight. And so we will not finish with with the chapter. <laughs> I was telling you, I was, thought I'd at least get up to that. And he was dreaming. It's interesting, too, that uh, I just think about this, that Paul uh, said that he had considered everything that he had learned done and he's cast it away. But you know, the things that he had learned of the Old Testament, uh, even under uh Mayo, uh, he received in those three years new insights. He received from the Lord a greater understanding of the Old Testament, a light that he had never known before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so God has enlarged his heart to understand more of that Old Testament and, and so his his concept of, of writing and, and the New Testament was based upon the Old Testament but was a greater insight as to the, what was what is to come. Don't you know that he had to have known like Isaiah fifty three? He probably knew every word of that. Yes. And he knew that that was the Messiah. And we see how he bucked against that when Jesus had come here and people had believed that. That goes to show you it can it can only be a work of God that can take a very intelligent man like Saul who was trained up to, to believe things like that. But yet when Jesus was here, those same guys could not believe that unless the Lord opened their hearts. It's amazing. That's the same thing that happened to us. <laughs> same thing. Maybe not in such a dramatic way, but um, boy, we were blind. We, you know, we thought we had it all together. It's very humbling, I think. It's what it is. God calls the shots. And He's done it all the way through our lives. And as He prepared Gamaliel to teach Him and everything, even though Gamaliel, I never see where he believes in the Messiah... Yet God used that training, seminary best training, to get equipped in the Old Testament so later on He's able to use it when that finally comes to light. It's probably those three years as He studied those same Scripture that He had been taught all His life now came to light. Yep. Have we experienced that? (laughs) We can identify with that, can't we? And the Bible is not old stuff. You know, I sit down and listen to the, the Word of God and said, well, I've heard that before. But then, 
spirit of God makes it fresh. And, it, uh, and if there's new stuff that you get, you know, I'm just writing down thoughts as you were speaking, and, and there's just new insights that come to me out of this old story. We've heard this story how many times? How many times have we read this? But as, as you read through it, you study through it, and you go, yeah, you, you see things there that you never saw before. There's no other book that has stuff like that. And that's in there three times. But each time, there are different nuances in each one of those stories. We didn't have the time to go through all of those. But the same story, but just in a, with a little more slant, and just comes together even more. The whole Bible does that. All the Gospels do that. And then we see all the truth come together. It's a beautiful thing. We have something that never, ever gets old, and it's always refreshing. Brings to light. The living keeps living. <laughs> it keeps living. You want to leave us? Father, as we, we 